Good evening, everyone. Whoa. All right. I think we're ready to get started. Um, and so I figured we'd start like this just to make sure we had a good awkward introduction before we uh, got rolling. Um, so we are very pleased to tonight to have uh, Pastor Jerry Reardon um, doing our session. He is a retired United Methodist pastor. And Jerry, I think you served, what, 42 years? Uh, your last church was at Noblesville for seven years. And uh, Jerry's done a lot of work in the Room for All Coalition, which is a, um, a group of leaders within the denomination working to make uh, our denomination more of an inclusive and, and welcoming um, congregation, uh, denomination and um, uh, denomination. So um, anyway, I just wanted to introduce Jerry. He actually attends worship here. Um, you're not technically a member of our church, but you're kind of like a member of our church. So. Technically, we cannot be members of the church, and we will not explain all that tonight. But uh, so, um, but anyway, why don't you just welcome Jerry as he uh, shares with us this night? Thank you, Andy, and thank you all for having me here. Appreciate it. I I've said many times in many places that I'm very grateful to find a church that's uh, done the hard work and made the decision where they're going to be as far as they treat all people, and you've chosen to be an inclusive congregation, and so that makes this a place that feels like home to me. And I uh, thought I'd come down and do some church shopping, but <clears throat> Joe Mitchell has been a friend of mine for many years. He invited me to come to church, said, hey, this Andy guy's pretty good. And then I had heard Andy speak at annual conference. I said, well, that sounds like a guy that might be my pastor. And I came first Sunday, and I never had to go anywhere else. So very grateful to be here. Um, so as Andy referenced, um, in 2018, we started a, a group that eventually became Room for All Indiana. It's the United Methodist uh, group of pastors and lay people who wanted a more uh, inclusive church. Uh, we started our work trying to get past the one church plan. Uh, and, and just a little antidote to add to what Andy shared last week, he did a fantastic job. If, if uh, you guys are listening to the podcast, make sure you go back and listen to what Andy shared last week because it's a tremendous intro to how United Methodist Church got to where we are. But a little antidote that Andy would not have been aware of, I was aware of this because one person who was on the Way Forward Commission, remember Andy talking about that last week, the Way Forward Commission, that was supposed to solve this problem before the last general conference, and they came and met, and they had, I think it was about 30, 30, 40 people that represent the whole gamut of this perspective throughout the denomination. A lot of <clears throat> leaders, uh, both very traditional uh, perspectives and, and affirming perspectives, <clears throat> and they went about the process the way we're supposed to, the way John Wesley used to do it, as, as Pastor Andy has, has preached to us recently. Uh, and they did Christian conferencing. And I heard a story that came out of that group that that work was so moving to the people that were part of that community because they spent a lot of time together. They, they came from all over the country, met, I think, three significant occasions, and spent a lot of quality time with each other and got to know each other personally. And at the end of the <clears throat> commission, they came through with a recommendation. And there was one person who has a very traditionalist perspective from my congregation when I was at Old Bethel, who became very close with a person who identified as lesbian. They, they became very good friends. And it moved their perspectives. And that commission, by over a two-thirds vote, recommended that we adopt the one church plan 
Uh, just a quick summary, one church plan would basically mean that Methodist Temple could choose, we're going to be an affirming church, but bluegrass down the road, they'll stay United Methodist, but we're not going to be um, doing any same-sex weddings, and we don't want any ordained pastors. That one church plan would allow that to take place, so that there would be that variety of perspectives. And uh, they recommended that. That was supposed to be the recommendation to come to the general conference. But the traditionalists that were still in that group passed word on to some of the outside groups. There was some pretty heavy-hitting agencies like uh, the Institute for Religion and Democracy, uh, the Good News Movement, the Confessing Movement. When they got wind of that, they, they complained, and they got the Council of Bishops to, to take that recommendation and add to it two other options, which one is just the traditionalist argument that we've always had and keep things the same, and of course that's what eventually got passed. But I just wanted to share that to let you know this is what can happen when we do true Christian conferencing, when people really sit down and talk and listen to each other and let God's spirit guide us. So uh, kind of interesting story that came out of that. Uh, if you want to be a part of this movement that is not done yet, we'd like to feel like we've got it behind us here at Methodist Temple, but if you care about inclusion in all places, uh, our Room for All Coalition is still at work, and we are very pleased because we accomplished some great work. We were able to swing the delegates to General Conference uh, from primarily a traditional perspective to centrist or uh, affirming perspective, progressive pers perspective, and uh, we're able, and, and that movement took place in a lot of other conferences. And because of that's why the traditionalists chose, hey, forget it, looks like we're going to lose this battle, we're getting out. And so because of that work, Indiana is primarily a United Methodist state. If we had not done that hard work, this whole conference could have become part of the general Methodist, part of the global Methodist church. And then every church would have to decide, do we want to get out of that denomination to stay who we want to be? Uh, so uh, it's important work. So if you'd like to be a part of that, uh, if you want to prayerfully uh, contribute to what happens at General Conference, on March 21st, there's going to be a Zoom gathering uh, that's going to try to share, here's what's at stake at General Conference, and here's what's happening. Here's what is happening in some other conferences across the country. That'll be uh, March 21st. It's a Thursday night, 7 p.m., 6 p.m. our time, 7 p.m. Eastern time, uh, and it'll be a Zoom if you want to be a part of that, uh, go to roomforallin, short for Indiana, org, and you'll immediately pop up an opportunity for you to just put your email in, and then you'll get the uh, email newsletters that come out with that. We, we, we're not putting out a whole lot right now, but we think we need to gear up and do some stuff for General Conference. So that'll be March 21st. April 21st, we're going to uh, have a Zoom call and get as many of our General Conference delegates throughout the state on that call we're going to introduce them quickly, and we're going to pray for them so that they go and do that important work at General Conference. So there you can add your prayers and, and actually pray for uh, somebody and see who's going to be representing us, people that you helped get elected. And then on May 21st, after the General Conference has happened, we're going to meet again. We decided to stick with 21st. We thought it just keeps it simple. That would be on a Tuesday night. And we're going to say, what's next? What's this now? Whatever happened at General Conference... What does this mean for our congregations? And when we go to our Indiana annual conference, what do we need to do? Okay? So let me know uh, if you need that information again later on. But it's roomforallin.org. Okay? All right. 
So Andy thought I should share a little bit about my journey and how I got to where I am because at one time I was very much a traditionalist in perspective on this issue, on, on other issues. I was a biblical literalist. I was a born and bred Methodist. Grew up in Plainfield, Indiana. Baptized there. I was the middle child of three. We had five years between each of us. And I was raised in a home with a mother who was a paranoid schizophrenic. So I don't know what you know about schizophrenics, but it's not a very fun illness to live with, uh, to grow up with. Uh, <clears throat> and we lived out in the country. So I share all that to say that my childhood was pretty lonely. I was very isolated. We kind of had to raise ourselves. Mom could only do so many things. If she was in her good state, she could function fairly normally, but when she was in her bad state, she would walk the floors of our house for two to three days straight, never stop. It was not, not fun to watch. But my saving grace was number one, church. Dad always still got us to church. And fortunately, Plainfield United Methodist Church was a very accepting church. And as oddball as our family was, they loved us anyway. And I felt an extended family there. We didn't have any relatives anywhere near uh, us here in Indiana. So that became my extended family. The other saving grace I have to say was also sports. I got lost in sports, loved sports, and I'd turn on an Indiana Pacers game and I'd create a box score and I'd keep track of how many points everybody had. That kind of gave me something to focus on when mom was doing some of her crazy stuff. And so it was in church where I found God, where God became real. And it was mostly through the leadership of a female associate pastor we had at Plainfield who just radically loved us, radically, unconditionally loved us, no matter what. We'd have these prayer groups after youth group ended, and people that really wanted to be serious about their faith would stick around, and we'd pray. And it was during those prayer sessions that I, I'd, I'd feel God. And for once in my life, God felt real. And so that's when Scripture became really important to me because, you know, out in the country by myself, I just started reading the Bible on my own. I read the Bible from beginning to end as a teenager. And I found a radical Jesus. I found a God who's a companion. And, and so the words in here have been always very sacred for me. Even though, obviously, I didn't understand it right or well, but I understood enough that God became my friend and my companion that helped me get through a tough childhood and to find some purpose in life. And so I decided in high school to become a pastor. So I share that because I want you to know this is important to me. I've, it's taken me a long journey to get where I am to be the affirming, inclusive-minded person that I am. And it started by taking this thing literally, thinking that every single word is the word directly from God. Whatever it says, that's what it means. And my fear was, if you took away one thing, you're taking away all of it, and it loses its authority. And it's still, even as a pastor, 42 years later, I've never felt like I stood up in the pulpit or on the floor, as I often would preach. I had no authority unless it started with the truth, the, the germinal truth you'd find in a passage of Scripture. And so that's what I'd lean on. But I had that littlest understanding and I took that to college, and as I went to University of Indianapolis, and there I found that I had very faithful pastors 
who served also as professors, and they taught me things that I never noticed on my own. I, I learned that the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, had more than one strand of history to it. There's actually the J source, the E source, the P source, the D source. Those traditions have been woven over time, and they were written at different periods of time. I discovered there's two creation stories. Did you know there's two creation stories? Not one, there's two. I discovered that the book of Mark is almost wholly found in the book of Matthew and Luke as well. They copied him. They, they were plagiarists. <laughs> I mean, they, they, you find word for word. You, you get a synoptic gospels parallels, and you can compare them side by side, and you discover that some of them choose to quote Jesus a little differently here and there, and after a while, you start realizing a pattern. You start noticing they each have their own agendas speaking to a particular audience at a particular point in history. And so I began to appreciate that this book, while I still believe is inspired by God, it's a divine human document, that it goes through the human filters. And they've grasped, given their cultural limitations, God as fully as they can, and they've tried to describe how they see God at work in their lives. And so we have the record of that revelation, and it's there for us to learn from and to grow from. And so that appreciation has begun to change how I look at Scripture. So just because it says it in one place and I take it as its face value doesn't mean that's truth. I have to dig a little bit deeper. I've got to understand the historical context. So you learn that there's not just one book. There's 66 books in here. You discover there's an oral tradition that started first before anything ever got written down. That's why you know, Pastor Randy was sharing the day that nobody seems to like the gospel of Mark except me. It's my favorite gospel because I think it comes closest to capturing the spirit of Jesus because it's so heavily based upon the oral tradition and then it was copied in Matthew and Luke. So I, I just kind of feel like Mark gets us a little closer to Jesus than the others do. Not that they don't have valuable and legit authoritative stories of Jesus, but Mark seems to come closest in my mind. So I like Mark. Um, you discover that that historical context is so critical. Like you read Paul, and when you discover, and especially after you go visit the city of Corinth and realize that it was basically a sailor town, and that meant that women that were in that town were rather promiscuous, Paul has his reasons to ask women to be silent in church because there was the danger of the Christian church being identified with that culture of promiscuity and so what he spoke was truth maybe for them at their time at that point in history in that given situation but it's not necessarily truth that is universal for all times so and thank God because if it wasn't for the ability of a female pastor to lead me to Christ where would I be I don't know if I'd be here right now so it's so important to to grasp that context um I also discovered that the historic position of the church has never been that the Bible is inerrant, infallible. That didn't arrive until the 19th century. In the 1800s, that's when somebody somehow made that decision that the Bible is infallible and inerrant, and you've got to take it literally, and somehow that, that's gotten ingrained in a lot of our culture, and it's still there, unfortunately, in so many churches. But that's not the historic position of the church. So that doesn't mean that the Bible's still not relevant to our time. But it requires us, and let me read this in your handout, page two. 
It requires us doing our homework to discover its historical context to find the truth that does transcend time and place. And I think the more you get into the scriptures, the more you understand its history and its context, you'll see that there's a growing revelation of God, in my opinion, that God at first is held in very simplistic understandings. They believe in a world that was flat. And the more that that God has revealed to us through time, we don't have to be afraid of science, we don't have to be afraid of psychology, sociology, all those is still truth that comes from God. And we take all that information and it helps us see the, the truth that can be found in scripture. So we've got to do that hard work. And I think you'll find there's this continuing expansion for inclusivity. I mean, just stop and think about when did God decide that slavery was no longer okay? But you can find in scripture there's passages that clearly condone slavery. At what point in history did God say, okay, no, we're not going to do that anymore? No, probably God never liked slavery. But our understanding the world at the time had to go through a lot of of sifting and filtering and understanding and and revealing by God to get us to the point where we say, whoa, that's just not right. That should not be done. The question of the biblical view of marriage. How many of you have heard the biblical view of marriage? You probably have heard sermons on it in some places. How many have, have heard that somewhere? Well, stop and think about the biblical view of marriage. We got some great models to follow, right? We got Abraham married his half-sister, Sarah, right? The daughter is father, but not his mother. Isaac's family sent a servant to find a wife for Isaac. They had arranged marriages. Would you want that? Some places do that. Jacob married sisters Leah and Rachel. How many of you would marry sisters? And not only that, but they had children with their slaves. So basically, two of these women were sex slaves, right? If you take it literally. Uh, Deuteronomy, the law says, if a rapist is caught, the perpetrator must pay the woman's father 50 shekels of silver and marry the young woman. Right? It says that in the Bible, people. Deuteronomy chapter 22, look it up. What that shows us is that women were simply property then. Okay? Uh, King David had multiple wives and several concubines. King Solomon had 700 wives and 300 concubines. Is that the biblical view of marriage? So, all this says, like it or not, marriage is a culturally defined institution. Marriage, relationships, and sexuality are dynamic. And in scripture, they're always messy. It's complicated. So anytime I hear somebody stand up and say, well, the biblical view of marriage is like, wait wait a minute, which part of the Bible are you going to read from? And even the New Testament, it assumes that there are people that have more than one wife, right? You could read that there. I didn't throw that in. Okay. So as United Methodists, we have this nice thing called the quadrilateral. And and what is the four things the quadrilateral? Scripture's primary, tradition, reason, and experience. And I have really appreciated that understanding because I think it's so real. Um, I went to Israel when I was in college. 
And I didn't realize when I went to Israel that I had already created this preconceived images in my head from all those years reading the Bible. I had pictures in my mind. And then when I went to that physical location and saw the terrain and saw the situation, I realized I had to rethink everything. So your mind creates these understandings. You bring this bias to Scripture, whether you know it or not. You bring a perspective that's based upon all of your previous experiences and what you've been taught, and that influences how you interpret the Scripture. Uh, I, later on, I got to go to Ephesus, and wow. Has anybody else been to Ephesus? If you do, you get a chance, please do it. They have done an incredible job creating the facades of the original town, a town that was about 250,000 people during Paul's time, the Apostle Paul's time. And it blows your mind at how sophisticated those people were. And you realize when Paul was, was speaking to those people, I, I guess I didn't realize it, but I thought I had, had this view. Paul's kind of a country bumpkin going around from little village to little village. And you realize, no, he was going into towns that were metropolitan centers, places of philosophy and dialogue and, and interaction between cultures. He was a very smart guy, and it gave me a new respect at least understand the arguments that he's making. He was really a very smart man, even though we don't always agree with his perspectives today. So we all bring that bias. And I can guarantee you, whether you like it or not, if you have been taught a certain way, especially about human sexuality, and you come to Scripture, you're going to read it, and you're going to think you know what it means. You're going you're to decide this is what it's trying to say. But then if you have personal experience with somebody who identifies as LGBTQ+, that's going to impact your view of Scripture because then all of a sudden you realize, well, it may say this, but it doesn't seem to jive with my personal experience. It'll at least force you to take a harder and deeper look at it. So whether you like it or not, it is true that Scripture, tradition, reason, and experience impact how you're going to interpret the Scripture. And so one thing that I've come to decide, especially when I come to give a talk like this, I've given up trying to convince people. It's just so, so hard. If people's got their minds made up, I can share all the facts in the world, and it doesn't seem to change their mind. It usually takes a personal experience with somebody they care about, and they realize, wait a minute, I love this person. Maybe I need to rethink and understand this in a little deeper way. So I like how Jim Dance says it on page four at the top. It is important to study the Bible. It is important, particularly when attacking or critiquing the life of another, that we dig beneath the surface of Scripture, beneath this English translation of obscure words, and beneath the biases of our own culture to find the true intent of the text. So that's what I hope we'll try to accomplish today. And to realize that God is still speaking. I think Pastor Andy's referred to this before as we talk about female pastor led me at faith about slavery. Somehow we came to a different understanding of that. And now, is there anybody that would argue that it's okay to have slaves? Not from a Christian perspective. Think about, I remember in my time growing up, in my generation, we thought interracial marriage was just not a good thing to do. And now we don't even hardly think a thing about it. And one of the terms that's been helpful to me to think through how we interpret Scripture 
is that to say that scriptures, especially on slavery, divorce, women, can be descriptive of their time, but not necessarily prescriptive for all time. And that's why I, I can say, well, you know, Paul said what he needed to say to that particular church in Corinth at that time, and it was truth, truth for them, what they needed then. But it's not necessarily prescriptive truth for my time period, for my age, with all the new information and revelation that God has given to us. So I really like that distinction between descriptive and prescriptive truth. It, it helps you keep a positive light that the, the Bible is still something to be taken seriously, but understand it in the right light, in the right way. Okay? So, let's get to the specific scriptures. We're going to deal tonight with just the Old Testament passages. Next week, we're going to go to the New Testament. And I'm going to keep moving quickly because my understanding is I want to stop about 7 o'clock and, and allow for any questions if, if you still got time for that. And if you got to go to the University of Evansville game, that's fine. I'll be there later on, okay? All right, so Leviticus 18.22. You must not have sexual intercourse with a man as you would with a woman. It is a detestable practice. That's the common English Bible version. Leviticus 20, 13, if a man has sexual intercourse with a man as he would with a woman, the two of them have done something detestable. They must be executed. Their blood is on their own heads. Okay, that seems pretty cut and dried, right? About as plain as you can. First fact, I want you to stop and, and think. If we're going to take this literally, this says nothing about women, right? There's not a thing in the Old Testament there's only one of these six passages that says anything about female same-sex relationships. So anybody that tries to argue about female same-sex couples or only have one passage they can actually quote. One single passage in all the verses of Scripture. Now, I would hope none of us would base a firm belief, especially when you're going to be judgmental towards another person, on one single Scripture. But that's, that's our Old Testament passage. So first, what we want to do, if we're going to take the Bible seriously, we want to take that verse and put it into its historical context, and really that work is made pretty easy, pretty easy for us. All you got to do is the, go to the top of chapter 18, same chapter you're going to find, 1822 Leviticus, and it says clearly the context. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You must not do things like they are done in the land of Egypt, where you used to live. You must not do things like they are done in the land of Canaan, where I'm bringing you. You must not follow the practices of those places. So what's the purpose? The law written here is to say, don't be like those Canaanites and Egyptians who have cultural practices that are offensive to God. Okay. Leviticus 20 begins in a similar way. So verse 1 of chapter 20, where that second verse is found later on, the Lord said to Moses, you will also say to the Israelites, any Israelite or any immigrant living in Israel who gives their children to Molech must be executed. What is it talking about there? Child sacrifice. Child sacrifice. The common people will stone such a person. So what these two chapters are trying to do 
is establishing practices in the land of which they are to be a new people, don't follow those practices. And we know that these are cultic practices. So it's not referring in, in general to homosexuality. It's not referring in general to same-sex relations. It's referring to a specific kind of interaction that happens by the religion of the Canaanites and the Egyptians, okay? So we're talking about cultic practices. You're talking about temple prostitutes, both male and female. So here's where it gets, and when I share this study, and I've done this in the past where I try, here's the traditional argument, here's the affirming argument, let you decide. Uh, I'm not gonna try to do that tonight, but I just want you to understand where traditionalists come from on this so if you ever get in a discussion, you might understand why they're saying it and perhaps have something to say back to them. So traditionalists will argue the Old Testament law can be broken down into ceremonial, civil, and moral law. Because there's a whole lot of laws in there that they don't follow, right? We'll get into some of those. Uh, but they make that division, and what they say is we don't have to worry about the ceremonial anymore. We don't have to worry about the civil, but the moral law translates to all cultures and all times and all places. And they would say these two passages that in their mind deal with homosexuality refer to the moral law. So we still need to follow those. They uh, also believe we shouldn't dismiss the Mosaic law too easily. And I would agree with them. I think the law is there to be uh, looked at and understood. Why, did the, why was that said? Might be something to say to us. Uh, not too many people quote from Leviticus. Pastor Andy did a couple weeks ago, right? You guys remember what he, where he quoted from Leviticus? Talk about the stranger, the alien. So, yeah. But how often do you find Leviticus quoted? Not very often, do you? So, out of all those Levitical laws, or 613, only two speak of same-sex relationships. 613, only two speak about same-sex relationships, and I would say a particular kind of interaction. So that's a long list of Levitical laws that they choose to ignore. Uh, and sometimes you'll hear traditionalists argue, but it talks about homosexuality being an abomination. Well, there's a whole bunch of things that are called abomination in Levitical law. It's an abomination to eat shrimp. I love shrimp. <laughs> it's an abomination to eat pork. To wear clothing of a mixed fabric. Does anybody have polyester on? It's also abomination to touch the sick or the dead. According to Leviticus, you're supposed to put to death, stone persons who do not keep the Sabbath. You guys come to church every Sunday? Talk back to your parents, you can be stoned or commit adultery. And you can't eat cheeseburgers. You're combining Meat with milk, dairy, beef and dairy. Can't put that together. It also names eating pork, rabbits, shellfish, animals already dead as abominations. So outside of the two mentions of same-sex acts in Leviticus, you can find 111 of the 117 uses of the term abomination to describe all these other issues. You don't usually hear that. So what I'm saying to you is that it's a high probability, if you look at all the scholarship, 
that Leviticus in 18 and 20 is referring to male cultic prostitution. I mean, if you look, do the work and you look at all the probabilities and understand the context, which I just share with you, is probably referring to that not to homosexuality in general. We know that the Canaanites and Egyptians worship Ashtar, a female deity, and Ishtar, a male deity, as fertility god and goddesses, and they believe that the depositing of semen in a priest was considered effectual in warding off evil and promoting good luck. That is well documented. And if I won't read the whole passage from 1 Kings 14, 22, but if you jump down to 24, it says, there were also male temple prostitutes in the land that committed all the abominations of the nations that the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. Okay? So just to kind of wrap up that, that section, I don't think there's any legitimacy to breaking down the Levitical law into ceremonial, civil, or moral. There's not a single Jewish person that would do that. That's an arbitrary imposing a convenient way to try to say, oh, this is, I want to pay attention to these passages so I don't have to pay attention to these other ones. It's just picking and choosing. It's also important to realize that it's very real that this superstition of the spilling of male seed was a big thing for people back then. It was huge. They thought there was life in that. They didn't really understand all the human... uh, bodily functions, but they saw life in that. That's why it was sinful to spill that seed. Um, <clears throat> Jim Dance suggests that part of the issue that's going on here is that <clears throat> for a man to lie with a man was wrong because that put one man in position of being like a female, and a female was considered property, not the same level of, as a male as far as their humanity, and so that was a violation of the law. Um, so deciding what Old Testament laws you're going to follow, it's just not a simple task. You got to do the hard work. Uh, We got a great example. We don't have time to go in tonight, but go to Acts chapter 15. We talked about that in our podcast a a week ago, that the church had this issue of circumcision, and that was law. That was always done to every male, but then when the church started to grow and when they started to, to have converts, and you had a, an adult male convert, and they told, oh, by the way, if you're going to become a Christian, you've got to be circumcised first. It became a little problem to church growth. I mean, try that out. for <laughs> Go visit your new worship guest and say, oh, oh, by the way, we've got those little restrictions you need to know about. And so the church took a hard look at that. Even though the law said it, it was as plain as day in the law, this is it. If you're going to take it literally, this is what you're supposed to do. And the church, the Holy Spirit, decided we needed to go a different direction. This doesn't make sense. If we're going to be a, a, a faith that takes God to all people and all cultures and all times, we've got to think through what's really important to our faith. So, great example where the church had to rethink and understand itself. Okay? All right. Any questions of that before I go to the Sodom and Gomorrah part? You with me? All right. Now, this one's an easy one. I, I, I laugh if anybody else tr- tries to quote this as a, a defense against uh, judging people <clears throat> different from themselves. They just haven't done their homework. 
I'm not going to take the time to read this whole passage. You can see it's, it's quite a bit. Essentially, you, you, if you've done your Sunday school, you know, you know the basic story here. So <clears throat> Sodom and Gomorrah, you, you have these angel-like people who come to visit Lot. He takes them in his house. <clears throat> he practices the, the act of hospitality. He's following the Levitical law of welcoming the stranger. And then the villagers come, knock on his door. They want to bring them out to rape them. And so the assumption is, if you just look at this on the surface, oh, well, it's a judgment against people who want to be homosexual. They want to do homosexual acts. And the interesting thing, they don't stop and think, what did Lot offer instead of letting these strangers out? Remember what he did? He offered his daughter. Sounds like a real righteous thing to do, right? Well, what is going on here is that the, how many of you have seen the movie Lone Survivor? It's a really cool movie. It's based on the book by Marcus Luttrell. But it's about the Middle Eastern practice of loike. And that is, is very similar to what we have in the Old Testament about welcoming the stranger. There was an understanding that you have an obligation. You welcome somebody into your home, they've become a part of your family for that time that they're with you. And you'll protect them no matter what. And if you watch that movie, it's, it's saved this American who got taken in, even though he didn't know him at all. There were terrorists that wanted him as badly as he could, and he risked his life to protect him. So you get a chance, go look that movie up. It's, it's a really great example of what exactly is happening right here. Uh, Ezekiel is one example that interprets. There's many places where Sodom and Gomorrah are, are mentioned. And it's never, in any of those instances, when it's referenced, talking about homosexuality. So, just think that through. If Lot offered his, his daughter, what did that accomplish? If he offered his daughter, then wouldn't he assume that the majority of those villagers that come knock on his door are probably heterosexual? Assume that that would satisfy them, Right? So that's really not the issue. It has nothing to do with, sex, with, with homosexuality or heterosexuality. That's not the issue. It's about how you treat the stranger. So we have historical archaeological records. There was a common practice in the Near East for soldiers to use same-sex rape as a way of humiliating their enemies. They were to treat them like women. Again, remember, they didn't have a high value of women. And so that was a way of humiliating their enemies. And so the best interpretation of what's happening here is that these villagers think these are spies. And so they're going to do what you do to enemies and humiliate them. The closest example would be, what, if you ever got put in prison, men, what would be your greatest fear? Being raped, right? It's an act of violence. And that was the practice back then and was very common, that you humiliate your enemy through that, that effort. So that's the best example we can get. Scholars are pretty clear on this. It's, it's, it's not even really debatable. So the best interpretation of Ezekiel 16, if you go back and read it, is when you don't prejudge, the sin of Sodom is, was mistreatment of the vulnerable who are strangers. The sin is gang rape is what's happening there. 
So the story suggests that Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed because they were not hospitable to those outside their community. Lot was not saved because of his sexual morality. He was saved because of his hospitality. And then what does the church do? How is our hospitality for persons who are LGBTQ+. David Gushy at the end of page nine says, the Sodom stories about the attempted gang rape of men because they are vulnerable, because they're a juicy target for humiliation and violation. It's about a town that had sunk to the level of the most depraved battlefield or prison. Pretty good summary.